Even though we have recently completed our series of messages on holiness from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25, there is a connection between that passage and the one that we have before us this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'd like to invite you to turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3. The connection with what precedes chapter 2 is very evident because of the word therefore, which appears in verse 1 of chapter 2. It, of course, naturally brings us to the place of seeing a tangible connection between these two passages, and of course a real connection in the subject matter of the latter part of chapter 1 and where we find ourselves here in chapter 2. Both make reference to the Word of God. It is very precious, this written Word of God. We will rue the day when The Word of God will be marginalized and taken from us. This week I had an occasion to watch an interesting movie. I don't often go to a movie theater. In fact, before this one, it's probably been about 15 or 20 years or so since I went to a movie house. But I went to the movie because... There are some good friends of mine, fellow servants of the Lord, who have produced this movie. It's playing right now at the Breckenridge Theater, and it's entitled Time Changer. It's a very interesting movie. It's a movie that exalts Christ. I was contacted some time ago about this particular film and its importance not only for the church, but as an evangelistic outreach of the church. The film depicts a man who is living in the 1890s, Dr. Carlisle, who is the professor at Grace Bible Seminary, which is, of course, enough for any non-Christian not to want to go to this film, because as we know, there are precious few who will want to go to see a film about a seminary professor. But this particular film is very provocative, and Dr. Carlyle has written a book. And in this book, he has a section in which he talks about morality and how it is important to continue to instill a morality in our culture. The problem is there is a statement in the book that says that even if the person of Christ is not named as to the one who teaches that morality, we still need to teach that morality nonetheless. And there is within the faculty and the board of this seminary an agreement about the need to continue to teach a morality even if Christ is not personally named as the one who is the embodiment of that morality. Except one man, who is played, interestingly enough, by Gavin McLeod. Gavin McLeod is a professing believer in Christ. And I saw a little trailer, a clip, sometime back that showed his own personal testimony and how he articulates his faith in Christ and how joyous it was for him to do a film where he could explicitly speak about Christ. And he is on the faculty of this seminary as well, and he objects to this book, objects to its teaching, and his position would be that if you take the name of Christ out of the teaching of morality, then you take out morality also. And how easy it would be to take one step away from the person of Christ, naming Christ, to the obliteration of morality altogether. And because he differs, and because there is a seminary rule 
that all of the faculty and board need to unanimously affirm their endorsement for any book which is published by one of their seminary professors, this endorsement cannot go on. And of course, Dr. Carlyle, who has written this book, is extremely upset, believes that there is just a misunderstanding, believes that this other professor really doesn't understand what he's trying to communicate. And so this character, played by Gavin McLeod, takes this Dr. Carlyle and he places him in a machine that his father, who is both a scientist and a theologian, who has died before this time, was able to construct a time-changer machine that catapults someone into the future. And he wants to take this Dr. Carlyle and put him into the future, and he does. Now, you know, of course, it's just a movie. That can't happen. But Dr. Carlyle is catapulted from 1890 into the 2000s. And he sees the devastation that has been caused in our culture by taking away the name of Christ, the very thing he was promoting in his book. And he walks around the city streets of Los Angeles and he rides in a vehicle that he does not, of course, know anything about. And he looks at people talking on cell phones that he doesn't yet know anything about. And he sees a church in which he goes in and worships and listens to the praise band. And he also listens very intently to the people who are in the church and who talk to him about coming with him to a Friday night singles church gathering where they go to the movie house and he watches a film with 18 feet high people who are not honoring Christ and even at one point runs out of the theater talking to the people who are the employees, especially someone who's uh, making popcorn, and says, Stop the film! Stop the film! They're blaspheming the name of the Lord! Because he can't understand how it is that someone, especially Christians, would go and sit in a theater and watch a film that doesn't glorify Christ. And so the whole movie is bent around the idea that when you take the Word of God out of the equation, you have a morality that is on the slippery slope to oblivion. I commend the film to you. I don't know that it's playing even more than just a week here in Little Rock because, of course, you have to buy the space for your film to be watched. And it was a reminder to me of that which is so precious to us, and that is the Word of God and how the Word of God needs to be upheld and promoted and taught. So if you don't mind, I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ and the Bible this morning. I want us to talk about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you've been with us for any length of time, you of course know that we have been focusing on the theme of holiness. And this, of course, is a way that we can pursue that holiness by what Peter tells us here in the first part of chapter 2. His intent, of course, is to tell us about how the Christian can experience spiritual growth in his holiness, which is, of course, proportionate to his intake of the written Word of the living God. I want to endeavor to prove, to proclaim to defend the point this morning that the intake of God's Word is central and crucial for the believer's holiness in this life. Without it, he simply cannot be sanctified. Don Whitney, in his wonderful book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, 
rightly says this, No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's Word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. We find in Scripture how to live in a way that is pleasing to God as well as best and most fulfilling for ourselves. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. Therefore, if we would know God and be godly, we must know the Word of God intimately. And then he says this, However, many who yawn with familiarity and nod in agreement to these statements spend no more time in God's Word in an average day than those with no Bible at all. My pastoral experience bears witness to the validity of surveys that frequently reveal that great numbers of professing Christians know little more about the Bible than third world Christians who possess not even a shred of Scripture. Some wag remarked that the worst dust storm in history would happen if all church members who were neglecting their Bibles dusted them off simultaneously. So even those who honor God's Word with our lips, we must confess that our hearts as well as our hands, ears, eyes, and minds are often far from it. Regardless of how busy we become with all things Christian, we must remember that the most transforming practice available to us is the disciplined intake of Scripture. How true. And this is precisely, beloved, what the Apostle Peter wants us to see from 1 Peter 2, 1-3. I want you to notice this morning with me three elements about the Word. Three elements about a proper intake of the Word of God into our lives. First, I want you to notice from verse 1 the prerequisite to the intake of God's Word. The prerequisite to the intake of God's Word. And then secondly, we're going to see from verse 2 the passion for the intake of God's Word. The passion for the intake of God's Word. And then finally in verse 3, I want you to see the person whose Word it is and to whom we are to take into our lives because of His goodness. The prerequisite, the passion, and the person. Let's look, first of all, from verse 1 at the prerequisite to the intake of God's Word. Notice what Peter says again. Therefore, linking what he has just said in verses 22 to 25, where he focuses on the Word of the Lord, borrowing from Isaiah 40, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What's he saying? Well, it is true, of course, that if you want to deal with these vices that Peter is listing here in your Christian life, you need God's Word in order to do that. Of course, it's true that you need God's Word first in order to deal with those things second. But that's not the order that Peter gives it to us here. Here, in verse 1 of 1 Peter 2, he wants to tell us that we need, need to deal with these vices first and foremost, for in the dealing of these vices in our lives, then we'll have a greater opportunity for the intake of God's Word. That's why I call this the prerequ prerequisite. Peter is concerned to tell us that in order to rightly desire the Word, you first have to deal with the sin in your life. And that's why I say it is a prerequisite for us. It is a prerequisite for our desiring His Word. And what Peter does is he gives us five representative words. Now we could say a, a case history, a general statement about sinfulness, 
for which we would need to deal if we're going to rightly desire the Word of God, if we're going to be rightly passionate about reading and studying the Word of God in our lives. And he gives us those five, and I want to go over those with you right now. The first is all malice. Do you see it listed there? The first vice that Peter mentions is all malice. He says you need to put it aside. It's sort of language that refers to the placing off of yourself of a dirty old jacket. It doesn't fit you anymore now that you're a Christian. This vice is not what you should be wearing in your life. And so he's talking about putting it off, taking your jacket off, taking those old clothes of your sinfulness off, putting them away from you. And the first one he says that you ought to put away is all malice. Kakia. It's the idea of general evil, wickedness, badness. It's sort of the opposite of goodness or excellence. Sometimes even translated in your Bibles, not with the word malice, but with the word evil. We might even translate this word depravity. He says, therefore, putting aside all depravity. You remember what he says in Romans chapter 1 about those who are depraved? He says in Romans 1.28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteous, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Our word is in that text. Kakia. It's the idea of just a general wickedness, a general evil. Paul tells us, that that's characteristic of those who do not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. 1 Corinthians 14.20 uses the same word. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil, kakia, be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, if you're going to be involved in evil, any evil, I want you to be an infant to that, but in your thinking, in your righteousness, I want you to be a mature child with regard to that. Don't be evil. Put it away from you. It's like an old jacket that doesn't fit anymore. You remember Paul's exhortation in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31? Same idea. Kakia, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's the word. Just put evil away from you. It doesn't characterize you anymore. That's what you ought to put away from you. It's like a jacket that doesn't fit. Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside. It's the exact same kind of analogy. It's a jacket that doesn't work anymore. Take it off. Throw it off from you. Put them all aside. What should we put aside? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. It's not you anymore. doesn't fit you. You don't need to take it upon yourself. It's what used to characterize you, but not anymore. Put it off from you. Titus 3.3, same word. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, evil. That's what characterized us before, but not now. It says the same thing in James 1.21. He says, put off from you malice, and how do you do that? By the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. God's Word comes into your life, and when God's Word comes into your life, and when the spiritual eyes of your soul are open, you see evil for the first time. You see it for what it really is, and you want to put it off from you. It's like an old jacket that doesn't fit. It's like an old dirty coat. Peter, by the way, even uses that same word, in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for kakia, for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So the first thing Peter says is, put malice, all malice, away from you. And then secondly, notice the next vice, all deceit. All deceit. Dalan. That's the Greek word, dalan. And it means guile craftiness, 
It's a word that denotes a selfish attitude that deceives people and hurts people for your own personal gain. Now this is, of course, not any kind of list that Christians ought to be involved with, not characteristically sure. In Matthew 26, this is what was characterizing those who were against Jesus, the rulers, the religious leaders of the day. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 4, it says, "...they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth." That's our word, deceit, dalan, by stealth. They wanted to plot to seize Him by stealth and kill Him. Stealth is that word where you want to do something so that no one else knows what's going on. You want to do it by night. You want to do it by deceptive means. You remember the airplanes, these jets that the United States and others produce that have those bombs and they don't want people to know when that bomb is coming and so they call these the stealth bombers. They want to be able to deceive so that the bomb comes when no one is expecting it. That's what they wanted to do to Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, deceit is also mentioned in verse 22. Jesus Himself said, "...deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness." That's what comes out of a heart of man, Jesus says. Deceit in His life, an ability, a desire, a selfish desire to deceive and hurt people. That's what he says must be put away from us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, he says about false prophets, does Paul, for such men are false prophets, deceitful workers. Dalan, those who are working behind the scenes uh, to delude you, to deceive you. He says they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, but they aren't apostles of Christ. They're deceitful workers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says about himself and his co-workers, "...for our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit." That's not the way we operate it. That's the way false prophets operate among you, but that's not true apostles from Christ. We're going to speak to you and exhort you, and it isn't by way of error like the false teachers or impurity or by way of deceit, dalan. Dalias. It's no deceit at all. We're coming in the name and person of Christ. Even in 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 22. Even when Christ was being wrongly accused and wrongly suffering and punished, it says He committed no sin, nor was any dalas found in His mouth. No deceit. He wouldn't even be named as a deceitful person. And then Peter says hypocrisy. You see it listed there? That's the third word. That's a prerequisite that needs to be thrown off from us. Can't be characteristic of a Christian. Can't be our trademark. Can't be our habit. Hypocrisy. This word is going to be very familiar to you because it's a word that when it's translated into English is the very Greek word from which it sounds. Hypocrisis, hypocrisies, hypocrisy. That's what it is. That's where we get that very word. It's a word that means someone who's like a play actor, someone who's two-faced. They live one thing and say another. They tell you that they are this kind of person, but then at other times they are completely different. They're hypocritical. They're play-acting. It's a form of pretense. It's someone who says one thing and does another. They're putting up a front. Hypocrites. That's what Jesus said those religious leaders of His day were. They were hypocrites. They were the people who were telling the people one thing, but they were doing entirely another. In Matthew 23, 28, He says, So you too outwardly outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You remember he even called them whitewashed walls. Oh, you look so clean on the outside, 
but inside you're like ravenous wolves. He says that can't even be named among Christians, not in the least. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, does Paul, the rest of the Jews joined even Peter, who had been standing aloof with the result, Paul says, that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. It's so alluring. It's so alluring because you can say one thing and then do another. You can carry on a game. You could be two-faced. You can live one way outwardly and another way inwardly. That's what false teachers do. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.2 that if someone who is teaching, who is a liar and a false teacher, it says they speak hypocritical lies. They say something good, but then they don't deliver. Peter says you've got to take off that coat. It doesn't fit you. Christians aren't hypocrites by characterization. They're not habitual hypocritical liars, not, not us. And then he gives a fourth word, envy. Envy. That's another prerequisite. And this is really, I guess, maybe digressing down into a level that really shows the sinfulness of the human heart. Envy is this. It's an evil which says, I don't, I don't like what you have. I want it. Or maybe even someone who's not particularly concerned with what you have in terms of the fact that they want it, maybe they just don't want you to have it, even if they don't want it. A person who is envious is a person who refuses to want you to have good things, even if they don't want it themselves. And there are people like that. They're so envious. It's it's maybe two groups or two kinds of people. It's the people who desperately want what you have and they don't have it, and so they're envious of you because you have it. Or it's people who don't even want what you have, but they don't want you to have it nonetheless. In Mark chapter 15, verse 10, Pilate, it was said of him, for he was aware that the chief priests had handed Christ over because of envy. Same word. Envy. They didn't like Christ having affirmation. They didn't like Christ being a chief rabbi. They didn't like the fact that He cleared out the temple of the money changers. They were making a big profit. They didn't like what He was doing. Even this word envy is used in Galatians 5 to refer to the works of the flesh, not the works of the Spirit. That's why you can't have it as a part of your, your clothing. Because it doesn't fit you anymore. You're not envious. You are thankful. You are righteously thankful for those who have what they have. You want them to succeed. You want them to receive good things. You're not envious of them. And then he gives a fifth word, slander. Slander. Katalelias. means evil speaking or even railing at someone. You're speaking evil about someone. It's an attempt to harm them verbally. You want to injure their reputation. It's your speech whereby you want to run down or disparage another person. And we don't want to do that. That's not what we're about as Christians. That's not who we are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, it's the only other time in the New Testament where this particular word, katalelius, is used. He says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you, Corinthians, not to be what I wish, and may be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders. You're going to be speaking about your brothers and sisters in Christ in a slanderous way. Don't do that. Even in our own first epistle of Peter, he says in 1 Peter 3, 16, if there's going to be any slandering going on, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 
Don't slander other people. And if someone is going to slander you, speak and do good deeds so that when they do that slandering, they're going to do it and be shamed because you're serving Christ. This is a, this is a pretty bad set of clothes, isn't it? This is not what we ought to be having on our bodies, in our minds, on our lips. And by the way, all of these, aren't they, are opposite of loving one another fervently from the heart. Do you see that in verse 22? You remember that? Love one another with a sincere love fervently from the heart. Malice, envy, slander, deceit. Those aren't the pictures of a Christian. You see what Peter's doing? He's really setting up a massive contrast. And he's saying, if if you want to be holy in this world, if you want to to live in a set-apart fashion, if you want to be sanctified, then love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And don't be named among those who are involved in all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. That's the opposite of you. That shouldn't be named among you. You you have to put off those things progressively to be sure. But it shouldn't characterize you. These vices, they must be relinquished before any virtue can be received. And that brings us to the second in our outline, the passion for the intake of God's Word. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see what Peter's doing? He's saying, if you deal with these vices in your life, then you'll be much more able to appropriate, to passionately pursue the virtue of the Word. We're to be constantly putting aside the vices of the heart so that we may crave pure milk. And crave is not too strong a word. This long forward there, it's crave, passionately pursue. And it has to be that way because those vices are those things which we crave, aren't they? Even in our Christian life, even in our regenerate condition, it seems as though those vices just allure us and pull us toward them. We have to have something that is stronger than that. We have to have something for which we crave in a greater way. And Peter says, long for the milk. There must be something to replace it. And for the Christian, the passionate pursuit of the nourishing, sustaining milk of the Word of God is what replaces it. I want you to notice Peter's metaphor here. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk. Why does he use that metaphor? It's so easy. It's so easy. If you've ever watched a child being nursed, if you've ever nursed a child, if you've ever seen that, that, that beautiful picture of that helpless, defenseless, yet beautiful baby who is just longing for that milk. I've seen it eight times. I'm an authority on this. Except I'm not the one doing the nursing part. But I've seen this. I've even seen there are times where that child is, is so discouraged because mommy's milk is not right there. And I've even seen times where that discouraged little one who's longing for that milk, when they finally receive it, they also, they also laugh. They giggle because they've been satisfied. That's why Peter uses this. There's a connection between a newborn baby who longs to drink in the milk of his mother and a believer who longs to drink in his heavenly Father's precious life-giving Word. So easy for us to see. Newborn babes. That specific phrase used only here. Artai genita brefe. It's only here. And it speaks of the beautiful flip side of the picture of someone who's not beautiful, who's not in need, who isn't precious, but someone who is envious and who's slanderous and who is hypocritical, someone who is deceitful, 
someone who has malice in their heart. Can you see the contrast? Can you see this beautiful picture of a baby who is nursing at his or her mother's breast, someone who needs that that nourishment? It's the only thing for which they can survive. What a picture. What a contrast. Well, the mother of a baby supplying all the nutrients. You know, it's really picturing God as a woman who is supplying what we desperately need. It's, it's as though we're, we're new babes and we long for this precious nourishment which our mother gives to us. Boy, what a picture. What a picture. And what is it that the spiritual children are to passionately desire? Peter literally says, the spiritual pure milk desire. That's literally how the Greek text reads. The spiritual, pure milk desire. Spiritual is logikon. And I agree with the translation, even though it doesn't use the word word, the pure milk of the word, it's talking about the spiritual milk. It's talking about the word. You remember in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, that if you are to give your entire bodies as a living sacrifice, it says, which is your logikon, same word, spiritual service of worship, that which is logical, that which is reasonable, your reasonable service. And how does it say do it? By not being conformed to the world, but being transformed to know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the Word of God. Peter says it here. Be transformed by the spiritual milk, the Word of God. Hasn't he just said in verses 23 to 25, For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. It's almost like when he comes into this metaphor, and it's the word which God gives to you. Take. Partake of it. Suck on it. Taste it. Put it into your mouths. Mull it over. Be nourished by it. This is a longing after God. By the way, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll find the same word longing. It's the same word used in Psalm 42.1 as the deer pants for the water brook. Soul my soul longs or pants after you, O God. See that tired, defenseless deer who may have been running for miles to escape the hunter. He's longing for the water of nourishment, and he comes to the stream and he drinks deeply. Strengthens him, nourishes him. This is a great picture. Passionate, craving. By the way, even intensified, this particular word, patheo, it has the word epi on the front of it, which means that it's an intensified form. It's a deep longing, a deep craving. Oh, it's... That which I long for. It's my meditation all the day. It's what I want God to give me. I have to have it like a, like a little baby who wants his milk. Psalm 84, 2, same word for longing. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. You long to be in the house of God. You long to be with God, God's people. You long for the Word of God. You long for it. By the way, in Psalm 119, I want you to turn there. Psalm 119 speaks of the same idea. The Septuagint uses the very same word here as well. Psalm 119, verse 20. Listen to this. This is, this is the, this is the Christian's nourishment. This is what he longs for. This is his food. Psalm 119, verse 20. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Is your soul crushed with longing? Is that what you say about your soul in terms of your desire to 
to read and be nourished on the Word of God. My soul is crushed with longing. After your ordinances, your Word, at all times. Same word, verse 131. I opened my mouth wide, Psalm 119, verse 131, and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Beloved, that's why I keep using this word intake, because that's what it is. You're taking in the Word. It so well describes the need of the Christian to take in the Word of God as though you were taking in the milk of your mother which if you fail to do so, you'll die for a lack of nourishment. You know, there are actually women out there who have ultimately refused to give their children what is absolutely essential for their nourishment, and they've taken the milk away and the baby dies. And by the way, don't miss pure milk. You see it listed there? Pure milk. Newborn babies long for the pure milk. I can't resist. It's the opposite of the word for deceit. It's ah, dalan. It's, it's opposite of deceit. It's saying that the, the, the milk of the word has no deceit in it. The little alpha privative on dalan, the word for deceit. Ah, dalan. No deceit. There's no deceit in God's word. It's a pure word. No imperfections, no impurities, perfect, pure. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 19.8 that the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. That's why he says in Psalm 12.6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Just keep refining, 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 and the Word of God comes pure, pure, pure every time, seven times the number of perfection. It's pure, it's perfect. Now, I thought this week, how can I, how can I communicate to very familiar ears the idea that you need the Word of God in your life? Well, I hearkened back to a book I read some years ago, Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes, and I want to Read this to you this morning. This is so good. Think about your life. Think about whether or not you were to ever say about yourself, I'm too busy. Too busy for the intake of God's Word. Hughes says, Lieutenant General William K. Harrison was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division, rated by General Eisenhower as the number one infantry division in World War II. General Harrison was the first American to enter Belgium, which he did at the head of the Allied forces. He received every decoration for valor except the Congressional Medal of Honor, being honored with the Distinguished Silver Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. He was one of the few generals to be wounded in action. When the Korean War began, he served as Chief of Staff in the United Nations Command, and because of his character and self-control, was ultimately President Eisenhower's choice to head the long and tedious negotiations to end the war. General Harrison was a soldier's soldier who led a busy, ultra-kinetic life, but he was also an amazing man of the Word. When he was a 21-year-old West Point cadet, he began reading the Old Testament through once a year and the New Testament four times. General Harrison did this until the end of his life. Even in the thick of war, he maintained his commitment by catching up during the two- and three-day respites for replacement and refitting, which followed battles so that when the war ended, he was right on schedule. When, at the age of 90, his failing eyesight no longer permitted his discipline, he had read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. No wonder his godliness and wisdom were proverbial and that the Lord used him for 18 fruitful years to lead officers' Christian fellowship. Hughes says, General Harrison's story tells us two things. First, it is possible even for the busy of us to systematically feed on God's Word. No one could be busier or lead a more demanding life than General Harrison. Second, his life remains a demonstration of a mind programmed with God's Word. 
His closest associates say that every area of his life, domestic, spiritual, and professional, and each of the great problems he faced was informed by the Scriptures. People marveled at his knowledge of the Bible and the ability to bring its light to every area of life. He lived out the experience of the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law! I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Hughes says, you must remember, th- you must remember this. You can never have a Christian mind without reading the Scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. If you are filled with God's Word, your life can then be informed and directed by God. Your domestic relationships, your child-rearing, your career, your ethical decisions, your interior moral life. You remember what we said at the beginning? Take Christ and His teachings out of the mix, and you don't have an interior moral life, however moral your life may appear to be. The Bible, the way to a Christian mind, is through God's Word. Again, we must be careful not to create a Bible-reading legalism. A good Christian reads the Bible through once a year. The Bible nowhere demands this. Some simply cannot read well or fast, and speed reading is not the answer. As Lucy told Charlie Brown, I just completed a course in speed reading, and last night I read War and Peace in one hour. It was about Russia. My own brother, who is severely dyslexic, having had the misfortune of receiving his schooling before much was known about learning disabilities, only learned to read well enough to get along in his trade, recently became a Christian, and with his newfound motivation to know God's Word, he purchased tapes of the Scriptures. His wife also reads to him. He's reading better each year. Most people, however, will find that reading the Scripture through once a year is the best way because it requires only five pages a day and offers a readable, a reachable annual goal. Believers, whatever your ability, you must regularly read and study God's Word. If you refuse, you are in effect editing God and will never have a fully Christian mind. Along with reading the Word, Hughes says, we ought to be reading good books. The brilliant Jewish radio talk show host Dennis Prager, a man who makes sure he's well-informed, said in this recent interview, this is very telling, one thing I noticed about evangelicals is that they do not read. They do not read the Bible. They do not read the great Christian thinkers. They have never heard of Aquinas. If they're Presbyterians, they've never read the founders of Presbyterianism. I do not understand that. As a Jew, that's confusing to me. The commandment of study is so deep in Judaism that we immerse ourselves in study. God gave us a brain. Aren't we to use it in His service? When I walk into an evangelical Christian's home and see a total of 30 books, most of them bestsellers, I do not understand. I have bookcases of Christian books and I'm a Jew. Why do I have more Christian books than 98% of the Christians in America? This is so bizarre to me. Hughes says it is bizarre, especially when a commitment to Christ is a commitment to believe in things that go far beyond the surface of life. Sadly, the bulk of the non-reading Christian public are men who buy only 25% of all Christian books. And I was last week at the Grace to You board meeting, and I was talking to John MacArthur, and he just had a meeting with 25 men of a Christian book publisher, and now it's down to 20%. All Christian literature is read 80% by women. I thank God for women who are readers, but men, where are we? Hughes says, men, to deny ourselves the wealth of the accumulated saints of the centuries is to consciously embrace spiritual anorexia. Great Christian writing will magnify, dramatize, and illuminate life-giving wonders for us. Others have walked the paths we so want to tread. They have chronicled the pitfalls and posted warnings along the way. They've also given us descriptions of spiritual delights which will draw us onward and upward. What amazing instruments reside in the three or four pounds between our ears. 
instruments with greater capacity than a thousand busy New York City switchboards. The mind is greater than all the computers put together, for it can possess the mind of Christ and think God's thoughts after Him, wear His heart and do His works. What an eternal tragedy it is then to have this mind and have it redeemed yet not have a Christian mind. We must protect our minds. We must refuse to allow our culture's media to write our program. We must say no to the wastelands that invade our homes. And we must make a conscious effort to submit to the divine programmer through reading His Word. There has got to be some holy sweat. That's right. Longing for the pure milk of the Word. And I'm sure some of you are sitting there saying, I can't do that. 280 times reading through the New Testament? 70 times the Old Testament? I can't do it. I'm too busy. I have too much going on. Well, our pastoral staff have started last week reading through a brand new book by John Piper called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Talking about the clergy, the pastorate. And he talks in this book about the issue of people who presume, even pastors, that they don't have enough time to read. This is what he said. This is very practical for you. We think we don't have time to read. We despair of reading anything spiritually rich and substantial because life seems to be lived in snatches. One of the most helpful discoveries I have made is how much can be read in disciplined blocks of 20 minutes a day. Suppose that you read slowly, say about 250 words a minute, as I do. This means that in 20 minutes, you can read about 5,000 words. An average book has about 400 words to a page. So you could read about 12 and a half pages in 20 minutes. Suppose you discipline yourself to read a certain author or topic 20 minutes a day, six days a week, for a year. That would be 312 times 12.5 pages for a total of 3,900 pages. Assume that an average book is 250 pages long. This means you could read 15 books like that in one year. Or take a longer classic like John Calvin's Institutes, 1,500 pages in the Westminster edition. At 20 minutes a day and 250 words a minute and six days a week, you could finish it in 25 weeks, less than half a year. Then Augustine's The City of God and B.P. Warfield's Inspiration and Authority of the Bible could be finished before year's end. This astonishing discovery freed me, Piper, from the paralysis of not starting great, mind-shaping, heart-enriching books because I lacked enough big blocks of time. It turns out that I don't need long periods of time in order to read three masterpieces in one year. I needed 20 minutes a day, six days a week. Several other thoughts made the discovery even more exciting. Is it too hard to imagine disciplining yourself to set aside 20 minutes early in the morning... 20 minutes after lunch, and 20 minutes before you go to bed to read on various topics for your soul and mind? If not, then think what you could read. 36 medium-sized books with that process. He says, take that early morning 20 minutes, for example. Perhaps you should not view it in isolation from your season of morning prayer, but as an organic part of it and help to it. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, confesses for many of us, I have often found it difficult to start praying in the morning. I have found nothing more important than to learn how to get oneself into that frame and condition in which one can pray. To read something which can be characterized in general as devotional is of great value. By devotional, I do not mean something sentimental. I mean something with a true element of worship in it. Start by reading something that will warm your spirit. You have to learn how to kindle a flame in your spirit. You have to learn how to use a spiritual choke. For him and for me, Piper says, that meant primarily the Puritans because there is so much devotional material today that is too light and too shallow and too ah-theological to be helpful. It just doesn't carry a sense of the greatness of God. He says, I can think of no better way to begin an early morning season of prayer than to mingle Scripture with a 15 or 20 minute taste of Jonathan Edwards' religious affections or Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress or Richard Sibb's Bruised Reed or Baxter's Saint's Everlasting Rest or Boston's Fourfold State or Burroughs' Christian Contentment or Ryle's Holiness or Bridges' Christian Ministry or Brooks' Precious Remedies or Flavel's Method of Grace. 
My heart resonates with Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones said, I shall never cease to be grateful to one of the Puritans called Richard Sibbs, who was a balm to my soul at a period in my life when I was overworked and badly overtired, and therefore subject in an unusual manner to the onslaughts of the devil. In that state and condition, to read theology does not help. Indeed, it may be well-nigh impossible. What you need is some gentle treatment for your soul. Sib's book, The Bruised Read and the Soul's Conflict, quieted, soothed, comforted, encouraged, and healed me. Piper says, no, the point is not to read many books. The point is to stay alive in your soul, to keep the juices flowing, to fan the flame again on Monday and having it burn bright on Saturday night. He ends by saying, brothers, fight for your life. Fight for your mornings. Protect those life-giving hours but also gather up some of the vanishing moments, venture a new kind of daily discipline, and read the great life-giving books of the centuries in 20-minute blocks. We have the time. Do we take the time? And if you're a Christian, this is what Peter says, you long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Is that what you want? You want to grow in respect to salvation? Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be moving on with the Lord? Don't be a malnourished, deformed, weak Christian who is feeding upon the junk food of the world instead of being a growing, strong, healthy believer who's feasting upon the delicacies of God's spiritual banquet table. The Puritan Thomas Cranmer once said this, This book is the Word of God, the most precious jewel, the most holy relic that remains upon the earth. It's what we have. It's God's mind. And you know, it's true of you if you've met the person of the Word. Look at verse 3. He says, You will grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's the only way we're ever going to pursue the Word of God like I've talked about this morning. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And even though this particular construction assumes that they have, it still asks the question, have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? Is that the condition of the craving of your soul? You want to know the the God behind the Word? You say no. Well, maybe it's because you've never tasted His kindness. Maybe it's because you don't know Him. Maybe it's because you've never put aside the malice and the deceit and the hypocrisy and the envy and the slander. You see, all of that is opposite of God's kindness. He's gentle, sweet, loving, good. It's the very thing we desperately need. It's the very thing God wants to give us. He wants to show us about that kindness. He wants to give us His grace. He wants to, He wants to feed us on the milk of the Word. I want you to bow your heads with me. And I want you to examine yourself. I want you to see whether or not you really desire to put off these ugly sins which characterize unbelievers and whether or not you truly desire to voraciously hunger for God's truth. When Peter says here in verse 3, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, he's really quoting Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste Him, people. Taste Him. Partake of His infinite goodness right now. Wayne Grudem writes, Peter is assuming that the words of Scripture are the words of the Lord. So to read or listen to Scripture is to hear the Lord speak, to take His good and nourishing words into one's heart. To drink the milk of the Word is to taste again and again what He is like. For in the hearing of the Lord's words, believers experience the joy of personal fellowship with the Lord Himself.
Moreover, those words give direction into His good paths for life and give promises of His continued goodness in time of need. Oh Lord, we need You. We need Your Word. We want to partake of Your goodness. Oh, can anything be more wonderful than receiving Your goodness, Your kindness? And if we have, Lord, it's because we've craved Your Word, we've seen it, we've longed for it, we've taken it into our hearts, we've sucked on it, we've tasted it. And it is deep and wide and beautiful and a blessing. Do you long for the Word? It shows whether or not you know Christ. It reveals what you really are longing for. What do I crave? If you don't, I invite you to come to Christ even now. For those of you who are unsure of your relationship to Christ, we partake of the Lord's Supper because it signals that we are His and He is ours. Please don't partake of this. It's not for unbelievers, but only for those who know Christ, who crave His Word. For those of you who know Christ, you're confessing this morning my lack of reading, my lack of study, my lack of desire. And I long for this Word. You've, you've given me a, a freshness. You've shown me that the Lord is kind to give us His Word. And I, I haven't partaken of that kindness as I should. Maybe there are some of you here who say, yes, I've partaken of that kindness and it's wonderful, isn't it? It's a joy to know the Lord through His Word. I, I drink it in each day. Yes, I'm reading as you instructed. I'm, I'm filling up, I'm tasting the goodness of the Lord as He reveals it to us in Holy Scripture. Thank you. Whatever spiritual state you find yourself, if you know Christ and you're confessing your lack of reading, your lack of study, your lack of desire, confess it now and receive the Lord's table as you ought. If you've rejoiced this morning because you've partaken deeply and it has a settled place in your soul, rejoice now that you're receiving those elements as a picture of the kindness of the Lord to you.